Sorry? I said, how are you going? It's 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 so great to, oh, good, good, good. to speak to you and have you on and, and all that good stuff. It's I think the last time we spoke oh, was years, 2012. Yes. It, was it really that long? I think it was. I think it was actually that long. Um, so it's, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I've already got some, there's going to be more people joining us as we go along today. Um, oh, okay. I, 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 we, we've got, so just so you know, we've got our enterprise crew on, uh, some of our enterprise trainers, we're going to have our wolf packers on as well. Um, so it'll be, it'll be quite the call. I, um, I introduce you to, to everyone. And yesterday I was telling my team about, you know, uh, you and your work. I introduce you as okay. the John, uh, as the, as the Michael Jordan of nutrition. Um, and, and I, as I mean, the what? Michael, Michael Jordan. Jordan of nutrition. Yeah. Wow, man. Thank you. That's very and, 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 I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm screened in the camera, right? I don't know why. Is it a? It seems like a smaller screen. How's that? Is that better? Yeah, it's fine. We can see you. We can see you. We can hear you. Um, can you hear me? Okay. I hear you fine. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, for the folks in the chat, if you just want to give us a thumbs up, if you all can hear us, just give us a, a yes. Awesome. Alrighty. So. Um, well, welcome, welcome, uh, Johnny. Always great to chat with you. One of my absolute most favorite people to speak to in the world of Thanks. nutrition. As I said, I, I refer to you as the Michael Jordan of nutrition. Um, you've been doing this, you've been blogging since 2001. That's, you know, 19 years and counting. Um, you've authored 15 best-selling books. You've spoken around the world. You've no doubt changed countless lives. But, uh, you know, one of the things I just want to share before we get rocking and rolling, um, you're extremely generous. And I remember... It was 2008 where you, I wrote my first ebook, The Truth About Supplements, and I sent it to you. I was um, quite young and, and brashly naive and didn't really know how the world worked. And I just thought, I'm just going to send it to Johnny Batter. And you got back to me and you, you wrote, you gave me words of encouragement. And, you know, I'll be forever. Uh, that's one of the, the, the highlights and, and really gave me a, um, a boost, you know, to, to continue wow, on the path. So. So, I had forgotten about that. Thank you so much. It's yeah. very kind of you to, to mention and to know to let me know that that mattered. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it, it really did. Um, even our, our interview. Um, so for me, as I said, I I, I regard you as as Michael Jordan. It, you you are Michael Jordan. What what you are, to, uh, but he is the basketball. You are to nutrition. Um, in in my eyes. So, um, yeah, and I, I do have to admit one thing. In the truth about supplements, I have taken it offline. Uh, because of the fact that it's it's just terribly outdated, and obviously you're all going to have your stamp of, of forward. I want it to be at a certain level, but I am working on another book now, so um, maybe you'll hear from me for another forward uh, some some months. Please awesome. do. Yeah. So um, since last time we speak, spoke, it was 2012. A lot has happened, and you know, a lot yeah. happened the last year with this crazy, crazy world. Uh, and I want to preface this podcast is going to be quite dynamic. We've got, I've got a lot of questions about different topics and these kind of things. We are going to focus on uh, cholesterol uh, following your book, which is being re-released and updated. We've got folks on the let line. Me grab it, let me grab it because I don't think it's showing up in the back. So a shameless plug, this is the book. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, plug away. And it's been, been so it was first released 2012, was it? Uh, am I getting those dates right? And now it, was first released, it was first written in 2010 or 11, which is why 10 years later we wanted to do an update. But it came out in 2012. Yes. So the, the story goes, basically, your publisher came to you. You had the, um, the Healthiest Foods on Earth uh, series. And they came to you and they said, hey, 
Johnny, we've got an idea for you. Can you write a book about the 150 ways to lower your cholesterol? And you were mortified. Yeah. You would say, I don't, I don't want to write a book on, um, on, on how to lower cholesterol. Are you guys crazy? And then, you know, some convincing. And then they wanted, um, you know, the, cardiolog the cardiologist of cardiologists to give you, you know, the, the credentials to go put it forward. Um, so 10 years on, what, what made you feel you need to revise it? And, um, yeah, what, what, what was the thing that thought, I need to revise this? Well, I mean, first of all, the, the research in this kind of an area you know, heart disease, cholesterol, anything that's really pressing. There's a lot of research and a decade's a long time. I mean, uh, a lot of stuff has come out since then. A lot of um, not only studies and theories uh, and changes in the way we practice and discovery of different tests and markers and genetics and all the other stuff. But um, there's also been quite a shift in the response to what we were talking about in the book. I, we meet doctors at conferences all the time now who, said, who say, you have literally changed the way we practice. I've got your books in my waiting room. I had no idea. Now, they're not the majority. The majority of doctors still think we should be the equivalent of disbarred. And you know they write letters to Dr. Oz, like, how could you have these cracks on? That's the majority. But there is such a growing minority of people who have kind of come on board with the notion that cholesterol testing is, as we do it now, as we do HDL, LDL, good and bad cholesterol is completely obsolete. Uh, a lot of people have come on board with the notion that cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease. Since 2010, which is really when we wrote the book, that's when the research started coming out that saturated fat has no causal relationship to heart disease. The first study was in 2010, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, still quoted to this day, 347,000 patients, no causal relationship. Then they started coming out fast and furious. 2014 was the Annals of Internal Medicine, no relationship between saturated fat and heart disease. Just last year, there was a big study in Malaysia where they looked at dietary patterns, low fat, high fat, low carb, high fat. They found that in terms of metrics for heart disease, when you looked at the ones that really mattered the only thing in the diet that made a difference was carbohydrates it didn't matter if they were on low fat diets high fat diets their risk uh, straightiated it, it, it correlated with the amount of carbohydrates in their dietary pattern so this stuff was, in the last decade there's been a, 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 just an awful lot of research and theory on this subject and it's leaning the way we said it was going to lean in 2012 only more so and there's a couple other reasons why this was, was so necessary. And one of them we didn't even know when we started it, and that was COVID. And I'll get to that in a second. Um, when we did a deep dive and said, okay, now, now let's really go back and see. In, in 2012, the original edition, we said testing cholesterol as we know it today. And I want to make sure, Mark, that everybody understands I'm talking about the standard test that you and I and most people listening to get from their doctor that's covered by insurance, HDL, LDL, it's the test that most doctors use to give you a prescription for a statin drug if your LDL is too high. That's the test we're talking about that should be retired. One of the goals of this book, in, in, in my greatest goal, I would be so happy if it achieves this, is that they retire that test and never again is a drug prescription ever given on the basis of HDL and LDL. So 
We knew that back in 2012. What we didn't really know was what people should be testing for. We knew that there were such advanced tests like the particle test, but they hadn't been around that long. And, and we knew there were things like LP little a that were more important and there were all these other things, but we didn't have an absolute clear, absolute epiphany vision of like, this is what you need to look at. Mm. Now we do. Right. So when we went back and we looked at that research, it starts in 1970. And we did a deep dive into what is it. We found that the predictors of heart disease have been hiding in plain sight for what, 70, 50 years. And, and nobody talks about it. So the theory, what we have, what we talk about in the new edition of the Great Cholesterol Myth is that there is a straight line continuum in cardiometabolic diseases, by which I mean prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, pre-heart disease, and heart disease. One line. And the thing that connects them, the thing that shows up 10 years before your doctor says, you know, Mr. Jones, you got some high cholesterol. We might want to look at those statin drugs. 10 years before that happens, something shows up that we could all be looking at right now and that we can treat, prevent, and reverse with diet. That's the message of this book. And the reason it's so relevant now in COVID that we didn't even know is that every one of those diseases I just mentioned, let's go over them again, metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetes, diabetes, pre-heart diabetes, pre disease, heart disease, obesity, every one of them is a pre-existing condition that makes COVID 10 times more dangerous. When you look at who's dying from COVID, most of them have these, under, not all, there's outliers, but we're looking at big actuarial numbers. Most of them have these preconditions. These are the most vulnerable. These are the people with the immune compromisation. These are the people who have underlying metabolic conditions that are on that straight line from prediabetes to diabetes to heart disease. And what shows up that predicts that first is something called insulin resistance. And it sounds like a technical term, but basically it's an error in carbohydrate metabolism. Your body cannot handle the sugar load. What happens next is that blood sugar stays high. The body can't bring it down with insulin because insulin is becoming more and more ineffective. Therefore, we call it insulin resistance syndrome. That's a direct line from that to prediabetes, a direct line from, and make no mistake, prediabetes is diabetes. It's just a little, it's not, just hasn't quite gotten the title yet. When it's all a continuum, just like high blood pressure doesn't start at 140 over 80. You know, what happened to 139? It's a continuum. And it's a continuum from diabetes to heart disease. And you can nip diabetes in the bud or at least keep it from ever getting any worse if you treat the underlying cause, which is insulin resistance, which is just a fancy way of saying carbohydrate metabolism error. Mm. Every time I, I, I listen to you speak and have the opportunity to speak to you, I, I was preparing the podcast questions that I wanted to ask. And I kind of knew that I, I'm not going to ask any of these questions because it's just going to roll <laughs> organically. And, and I love it. Um, ask so, anything. I, I yeah. love your questions. They're, they're yeah, smart. And they're, 
you're informed. So please throw them at me. I'm happy to. What one of the things that uh, an analogy I, I wanted to 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 start kind of the show with and and kind of give is cholesterol was once said to me that uh, you know the analogy that I like to use is if the build if the building is on fire if the building is on fire the fire is inflammation cholesterol is the fire truck that comes to to quench that inflammation and cholesterol lowering medication and drugs are essentially uh, terrorists uh, with a rocket launcher shooting the fire trucks and and blowing up the cholesterol so cholesterol is nothing more than a than a marker of inflammation what we need to do is look under the hood and when we look under the hood what we you know as you've pointed to with research which we usually find is you know uh, high, high blood glucose uh, high insulin high fasted insulin uh, metabolic syndrome diabetes so what what is um and what is the best way to explain We've got a lot of trainers on the line who are going to go back and, and ask and, and you know cl clients going to ask them question this term inflammation gets well firstly is one is the analogy apt and secondly um how do you explain inflammation as a process well that's that's a multi-part question it's a brilliant question but it has a number of different parts mm. one of which is the analogy about the fire and the flame the other of which is inflammation how does it happen and what does it do um so let's let's start with inflammation because that really is one of the prime drivers of i'd have to say every degenerative disease we know of i don't know of a degenerative disease from asthma to um to any of the metabolic diseases we just mentioned, to cancer, to Alzheimer's. I don't know of any major disease like that that does not have as a major component inflammation. So it may not always cause a disease, but it promotes it. It makes recovery more difficult. It makes it more complicated. It is definitely one of the twin towers of cellular destruction, the other being oxidative damage. So let's clear up what inflammation is for people who might be unclear about it. There are really two forms of inflammation and everyone listening to this knows form number one. Form number one is called acute inflammation. So if you get a toothache and you can feel it like throbbing and it's, it's, it's inflamed, that's acute inflammation. If you bang your knee against a wall and it is throbbing and it gets, that's acute inflammation. If you get an abscess on your skin and it's all swollen, that's acute inflammation. As my friend Barry Sears, the author of The Zone says, acute inflammation hurts. Chronic inflammation, which is what you and I are talking about, kills. Chronic inflammation is a kind of relative of acute inflammation, but it flies beneath the pain radar. It's happening at the cellular level. It's happening in the organs and the tissues and the cells and the endothelium and all the other components of the body, but you don't feel it any more than you feel symptoms of diabetes or you feel the symptoms of high blood pressure. They're under the hood. They're happening, but they're not something like a toothache or an abscess or a bang on your shins that you feel. And what happens in chronic inflammation is kind of the same thing, only instead of it being a big obvious abscess on your skin or a big, you know, a, a, a knot on your knee, it's little cellular damage that creates little injuries and weaknesses, either in the endothelium, which is the lining of the artery wall, uh, or any other place. And that's where the trouble starts. So cholesterol is basically this essential molecule 
that's just floating around, minding its own business, not really harming anything, until it gets damaged by either inflammation or oxidation. And then the damaged particles wind up lodging in a parking space they don't belong in. And then the body goes, whoa, we got an invader. And it sends all the artillery. And now you start to have inflammation because that's the first response of the immune system. And then there's more oxidative damage. And then all of a sudden, the muscle cells come. Let's put a, a little cap on all this so you get some calcification. And that's the beginning of the plaque and the, the, small, the, the, the uh, narrowing of the artery and all the damage. It's not the cholesterol. Cholesterol just happens to show up and do, you know, be part of the particle mess that's in there. Mm. It's the things that damage the cholesterol. So to perhaps to fix the, the analogy that I said before, it's, it's almost like the fire truck cholesterol gets hijacked on the way and actually becomes part of the, the flame that is, is the best part of the problem. Yeah. Up itself. That's a yeah. good way to put it. I, the, the thing that I think which we may maybe missed in the first edition that is abundantly clear now. I mean, I don't even, I, I can't even believe anyone argues with this at this point. Cholesterol can't travel in the bloodstream by itself. People need to understand this. It needs to be in a container. So if you think of cholesterol like an oil, it's not, it's a sterile, but it's, it's kind of like an oily structure. If you wanted to get oil across the lake, would you pour it in the lake and assume it's going to get to the other side and somebody's going to be able to cook with it? Of course not. It doesn't float. It doesn't go in the water. But if you put it in a bottle and send it on a tube, it'll get there just fine. So cholesterol travels in something called a lipoprotein. Think about HDL. What does it stand for? HDL stands for high-density lipoprotein. LDL stands for low-density lipoprotein. Those are the boats. The lipoproteins are the boats, and cholesterol is the cargo. We've been measuring the cargo, which is fairly irrelevant. What's very relevant is how many boats are in the water. Because think about it logically. The more boats in the water, the more accidents are going to happen. The more people who get into a nightclub, the more likelihood there's going to be a fight. And the more people that crowd into an area, the more likely somebody's going to bump up against someone else and something bad's going to happen. It's just the nature of crowds. So when you have a massive amount of lipoproteins, even if they're harmless, there's a greater chance of an accident. There's a greater chance something's going to go wrong. So what we need to be measuring is not the cholesterol in the boats, but the number of boats. That's called a particle test. And that is the more, that is the 21st century version of a cholesterol test. That's the test we think is worth getting. The old fashioned HDL, LDL, is nonsense. We now know, they found out in 1963 that cholesterol traveled in these two different kinds of boats. And one was, was low density. If, if you put it in, a, in an aqueous solution, the low density ones would, would, um, would float because they had low density and the high density ones would, would go to the bottom. So they, oh, those are kind of different LDL, HDL. And I don't know, and it looks, one of the HDL seems to do, not do such bad. So we'll call that one good and we'll call this one bad, okay? That's the equivalent of using a flip phone in the age of the iPhone 12 and the Samsung Galaxy. It is the most rudimentary 
1963 division of cholesterol. You know how many types of cholesterol there are? Over 13 that have been identified so far. I'll list them, a few of them for you. There's LDL3A, 3B, there's LDL, uh, H, there's HDL2, 2A, 2B, uh, there's HDL3, there's LP little a, there's oxidized uh, um, cholesterol, there's LDL small particle a, big part, uh, small particle b, pattern a, all of this is data about these particles and their size and their performance in the body. And we are still stuck measuring it like, well, there's this, the good guys and the bad guys. Mm. And it's just not true. Look, Mark, we can decode the human genome. We now know there's like 30,000 genes. I'm no geneticist, but I, I read the papers. About 30,000 genes, and they've now decoded it. And it's a relatively easy process. Correct? Everybody mm. knows that? Yep. Suppose you were still in a world where doctors ignored that and said, well, we can tell a lot about a person's health if we know if they're tall or short. So let's put people in two classes, tall people and short people, because short people don't get certain diseases like agri, you know, there are certain diseases that go with tall people and certain diseases that tend to cause students. So we're going to just divide the population into short and tall, and we're going to stop there. And people are going to, dude, there's 30,000 genes. What are you, there's metrics, there's biometrics. We've got them up there, textbooks on them. What are you, short and tall? That's like from the dark ages. And they're still sticking to their guns. Good and bad cholesterol. It's nonsense. So and what's really criminal is that people get prescriptions for drugs based on that test, which to me is like getting a prescription for drugs based on a horoscope in People magazine. Hmm. One of the things that I've heard you say in an interview before is that uh, your particle number was high, but on a traditional test, the LDL versus HDL, and they're just really, as you said, delivery systems to and from the liver. Um, obviously, you're, you, you know, you live a very healthy lifestyle. What, what have you seen? Like, what, what are some of these attributing factors to making particle numbers higher if it's not the cholesterol? Well, just, is it sugar? Is that, is that? Is what? Oh, is it just sugar? Like one of the things that you referred to before was was prediabetes and diabetes and metabolic syndrome. So, so we are we placing the, the blame on on sugar or is it excess calories or is it lifestyle? I mean, it's obviously lots of things. But for you, you know, having a healthy lifestyle, uh, what was what's the difference that makes a difference? I I, I was an I'm an interesting case uh, uh, study in this because my um, my regular cholesterol numbers, the 1963 version are wonderful. And every doctor I've ever had before, I became enlightened about this. Oh, terrific. 160 cholesterol and 90 LD. Oh, fantastic. No problems. Then when I became enlightened, I started getting tested actually matter. And I got the particle test. And lo and behold, yeah, my LDL is just fine. Except there are millions of particles in there and they're the nasty little small bb particles that pattern b this is a level of danger and risk that is completely completely hidden in the ldl hdl test so it works both ways some people have a high ldl they go on a standard drug they don't need it because when you look under the hood they got big fluffy particles and they don't have that many of them and it's not really any real danger other people may have a good LDL like me, but they've got really bad particle number and, and size, and that has to be treated. So it's, it's not just that the LDL HDL overprescribes statins, which it does. 
it also may underprescribe treatment for people like me who think, oh, or who might have thought, everything's just great because my LDL's fine. Your LDL is irrelevant. What's relevant is the number of particles, and there's ways to measure this now. The pattern of those particles is pattern A, pattern B, one's atherogenic, one isn't. What else is happening? What's your LP little a? What are your triglycerides and HDL? What's that ratio? So all of these things present a, a, a full and complete picture of somebody's risk and somebody's health. LDL and HDL, you might as well throw a dart into a dartboard. Because we, we talk about studies in the book where they looked at, uh, if they're called meta-analysis, they, they combine lots and lots of different studies so that they get a huge patient population. In this case, I think it was 375,000 patients were looked at, and they looked at cardiovascular entries into a hospital. People who are being admitted to hospitals in the United States of America with cardiovascular-related either CAD, cardio artery, uh, coronary artery disease, or any other kind of cardiovascular strokes, uh, heart disease, uh, 375,000 people. You know how many of them had normal cholesterol? Between 50 and 60%. Normal LDL cholesterol doesn't predict anything, good or bad. It's a crapshoot. It's throwing a dart. And it is simply to me disgraceful that we are hanging on to this antiquated measure that tells us nothing and obscures the real causes of heart disease. So, so for, for Johnny, for you um, being healthy, what, what was like, what were some of the reasons? Because I suppose the reason why I ask is a lot of people on the line who, who, you know, they're like, my cholesterol is good. They get the particle test. Well, it's high. What, what are some of the things that when the particle number becomes high and otherwise, is it just genetic? Well, I'm actually working with, with my, my team of functional medicine doctors and, yeah. and advisors to try to, to try some of those things to see exactly what could make a change. Maybe I wasn't being high fat enough. Maybe my carb uh, excursions and, and treats once in a while were enough to put it over the edge. So right. I'm now taking steps to find out what I can do. I'm gonna have it retested. I got a glucose, a continuous glucose monitor. I'm really looking at what foods raise and which don't, because we really believe that this stuff starts with insulin resistance, which starts with too much sugar. And yeah, you could be living what looks like a pretty low carb lifestyle, but if your carbs are more than your body can handle, eventually blood sugar is going to rise, insulin is going to rise, and you're kind of on that pathway. So could that be the, it could be, could it be genetic? Could it be something that we're not even thinking of yet? Yeah, I don't know. But the point is, by looking at those measures, you get real information that you can use. By looking at HDL and LDL, you are dreaming if you think that that's going to in any way predict something good or bad. It's kind of irrelevant. It's an old-fashioned measure that does not really tell you what's going on with your cholesterol in the body. So another another multifaceted question for you: um, cholesterol research. And when we started to demonize cholesterol research, you know, you always point to Ansel Keys as the figurehead. Um, seven country study excluding 14 of whatever was the countries or 22 countries he excluded it he showed what he wanted to show later on he became uh, you know time man of the year was hailed as a savior of you know heart disease and really probably his work increased heart disease and that was further uh, spoken about into the Framingham study which I do want to talk about as well but in, in saying that it almost seems that the first edition of the book or one of the conclusions that people have uh, pointed out with, with cholesterol research and particularly the seven country study is that the same, his conclusion was that uh, cholesterol, high cholesterol causes heart disease. Um, but also what can be said was from the statistical analysis is that 
high cholesterol, low cholesterol is also correlated to uh, high incidence of, of all-cause mortality and morbidity. And, and one of those particularly was cancer. So basically, the, the, his own research pointed out that if you have high cholesterol, it can be correlated with uh, heart disease. But by the same framework, if you have low cholesterol, it is certainly correlated with cancer, just as high as, so it's like, oh, well, you didn't die from uh, cholesterol, you didn't die from heart disease, well, you died from cancer. Um, so it's like this, this, this demonization of cholesterol and then cholesterol linking to saturated fat, what it seems to me is most of the studies and, and work that's been done, um, you know, pointing out that the mishaps of cholesterol has been kind of attacking that area. Whereas what you're saying that the revised version of, of the work that you've done in the book is showing what's actually happened in the last 10 years actually challenges that status even more, which is now saying that cholesterol actually has no correlative factor to heart disease whatsoever. Is, is that the right conclusion that the new, new research has been? Not exactly. Not exactly. LDL and HDL are just useless. Right. But when you look under the hood, high particle numbers do predict bad events. Right. High ApoB numbers, which is kind of the same thing, also predict much better. High triglyceride to HDL ratio, very predictive. LDL and HDL are useless, but it doesn't mean that there's no information to be had by looking under the microscope at the types of cholesterol, the patterns of cholesterol, the number of lipoproteins. That's valuable information. That's 21st century testing. But the, like I said before, it's like the equivalent of a flip phone. It, it is yeah. texting where you have to hit three things to get a letter. You remember that in the yeah, beginning yeah, in the yeah. 90s? Yeah. yeah, that's what we're yeah, doing not, with HDL. So, so the now is, is correlative, but we have to look under the hood and really know particle sizes. What, what, one thing that, you know, uh, yeah, what, one, one thing. So normally the, the saturated fat story goes, you know, Ansel Keys, but there's something that obviously happened to the rabbits, uh, you know, when they, they fed rab, um, uh, saturated fat to rabbits and showed that they, you know, that, that's where it No, they fed cholesterol. They fed cholesterol to rabbits, and it was in 1913, and they knew nothing about biochemistry then. And what they didn't realize was that rabbits are vegetarians. They don't eat cholesterol. They have no mechanism for getting rid of cholesterol. They don't encounter cholesterol. They eat lettuce and celery. They don't eat anything that has cholesterol in it. So, yeah, you fed this foreign substance to a, an animal that has no system able to deal with it on any level, it's never been seen before, and they can't get rid of it. What a surprise! So that that study is just utterly irrelevant. It doesn't stop vegans from quoting it, though. I think the the bigger hit on cholesterol and saturated fat, as you correctly point out, was not from those Russian studies in 1913, but from Ansel Keys's correlation study. So what I think is important that that everyone should know, even if you're not interested in the details of cholesterol research, everyone should understand the difference between a clinical study and an observational study. So observational studies, they're called epidemiology. They don't, a let me tell you what a clinical study is. I want to find out if this bodybuilding supplement really builds muscle. So I take two groups. Now, I'm not going to just take any random group. Some people might be 80 years old. And they're not going to build muscle. I don't care what you give them. Uh, and some people might be, you know, very gifted athletes. So I have to match those groups. I have to make sure they're pretty identical. I want to make the equivalent of them being almost like genetically equal, like twins. That would be the ideal. But I'm not going to get that. But I'm going to match them on sex. 
I'm going to match them on age. I'm going to match them on previous athletic experience. I'm going to match them on what supplements they take. I'm going to match them on any previous medical history. I'm going to try to make them as identical as possible. And then I'm going to give one group the bodybuilding supplement and the other group not. And I'm having to exercise the same amount. And at the end of six months, I'm going to measure. And if there is a difference, it is a reasonable expectation to say that the only thing different in these two groups was one took the supplement and they gained two inches on their arm. I want to say it probably had something to do with the supplement. But if at the end of this controlled study, there's no difference, I want to say the supplement probably doesn't work. That is a clinical study. This is an observational study. I go into my neighborhood. I want to find out what people eat. I give them a questionnaire to tell me what they ate in the last six months. I make notes. I watch them. I follow this group for a couple of years and I see how many of them die. And now I want to look at what they ate and I want to see if there's any correlation between what they eat and how fast they die or how fast they get heart disease. That is an observational study. As you can imagine, it is the most preliminary kind of data because you don't know if these people are matched. You don't know what their history was. You don't even know if they're telling the truth or if they even remember what they ate six, six weeks ago. The food frequency question is the worst piece of data collection thing I can imagine. And you answer questions about eight, six months ago. So it's you're being basically generous, an observation. You're being, you're being generous saying that they gave them a questionnaire study because that research was also done on the, the what food was available in the country. They didn't even give them a quick, like, it was even worse than that. Uh, it was looking at, at the, the agricultural, uh, what, what food is available to that country and saying, well, this country has more uh, meat available and saturated fat. So therefore, we can correlate this country with, with higher uh, rates of that. Therefore, they're consuming that where in actual fact, they may or may not uh, have been consuming it at all. And that's true, and it's but it's also true that in current dietary research, they do use the food frequency questionnaire, and it's horrible. And it's true that what they did back then was even worse. Yeah. But the food, you should we get we give an example of it in the book. We actually took something from the food questionnaire and put it in the book. You can't even believe how bad this is. The questions are ridiculous. How many times did you have butter on either beans, string beans, bread, or other in the last four months? It, yeah. And what it's, it's just ridiculous. So why I tell you this is because the seven country study was an observational study. And worse, most nutritional research is observational studies. So we give it some examples of observational studies in, in, that have been correlated. Every so often, the, the, we, there's a statistician named Nate, Nate Silver who publishes this stuff every so often. Real live correlations, correlations, associations that have been found in studies, there are correlations between the number of movies you watched and what you got in high, what what book you read in high school, between diabetes and the Bill Clinton's administration, between you know the number of there are all kinds of spurious correlations that arise that have nothing to do with the one I teach all the time is that there is an observational study that has shown for years a correlation, a statistical significant correlation, two things moving together, right? Between storks and babies yep. in Denmark. Ah, you talk, yes! you talk about it in this book here. <laughs> I do, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember this. Right. How kind of you. So yeah. there, for those who don't know, there is this correlation between storks and babies. 
the more strokes, the more babies. It happens year in and year after. Now, it's a great example because I hope everybody kind of knows that strokes don't bring babies, but that would be the that would be the conclusion. Here's why it happens. It happens because storks like to nest on surfaces that slope, particularly if they're kind of tarry. They love that. That's their nesting. Okay. In Denmark, when young people want to have families, they move out of the city, which is mostly young single people, and they move into the suburbs where they have their babies. Guess what the suburb, the, the architecture in the Denmark suburbs is? Sloping tarry rooftops so yeah the storks come to the to the rooftops and they have storks and the people come to the same areas where they have those rooftops and they have babies they are correlated but one doesn't cause the other and that's the problem with nutritional research like the seven countries study they see more of something and they assume that caused it but there's no evidence that saturated fat caused any of the things that they were observing, none whatsoever. And when you go back and you actually look at these diets that they were promoting, the Mediterranean diet, we actually went in the book and I, I looked at menus in restaurants in the Mediterranean area. Remember the Mediterranean diet, there's 22 countries in the Mediterranean. There's Israel, there's Syria. They are vastly different countries. They don't all eat the same thing. And I looked at some of the menus in Italy and Greece and there's pork on the menu, there's beef on the menu, of course there's, they, they don't not eat these things. Um, but we have this notion that like, they ate less saturated fat, they had less heart disease. No one looked at the fact that they lived outdoors a lot, that they actually eat their big meal during the day, that they take naps, that they have social relationships where they share their emotions, that they close down from two to four in the afternoon. All of this wasn't looked at, but more saturated fat has to be the reason that they have less heart disease. And, and those studies are inherently flawed. A great example is smoking and lung cancer. It started as observational studies. It's, you know that whenever there's a lot of smokers, there's a lot of lung cancer. No one said it caused it. It's still found together a lot. Let's make a hypothesis. Now let's test it. 20 years of testing, clinical studies, laboratory studies, they now know, yes, it does. But you don't make health policy based on an observation. That's like saying I go to Gold's Gym in Venice, a lot of guys are wearing red tank tops. I come away and go, oh, red tank tops cause big muscles. You've got to look beyond the observation. And that's what they don't do in those studies. And that's why we wound up with this cockamamie theory that saturated fat causes raised cholesterol, which in turn causes heart disease. And that's kind of been debunked. Just just for the folks who didn't see it and listening on audio, I'm holding up a copy of Living Low Carb, uh, one of Jody Bowden's great books where he talks about that study, uh, the, uh, the what do you call it? I call them pelicans. They're not pelicans, are they? They're uh, <laughs> babies, whatever they are. A great book. Make sure you um, go pick it up along with, with everything else. What, one thing that... Um, you know, we talk about Ansel Keys, but something happened in, what was it, 1911, the formation of Crisco, and we had vegetable oils. And one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on was 
you know, the thing with vegetable oils, or, or more particularly hydrogenated and partially hydrogenated oils, which New York City now has completely banned, and America is is on their way. Australia aren't really as as forward thinking. They they believe their stance, our our equivalent of the FDA, is their stance is that well, calorie consumption is below 0.1% uh, of someone's diet, so we don't have to do anything about trans fats right now. But the thing with with hydrogenated oils is one. Um, they're very high, well, most of them, except for probably canola oil, uh, is very high in omega-6. Um, the average diet uh, of omega-6 for the Western diet is anywhere from what, uh, 16 to 1 omega-6 to um, sure. you know, 17, 18 to 1. So high, highly inflammatory. But the thing, at the same time, when we were demonizing uh, saturated fat, what a hydrogenated oil is, is saturating an unsaturated fat with a chemical process. So it seems really ironic to me that Butter, lard, coconut oil, all animal products that contain saturated fat got heavily demonized, but yet hydrogenated oils flew under the radar when they are inherently a saturated fat. So, I mean, can, can you speak to this like kind of, it, it reminds me a bit of COVID, to, to be honest, like there's so many contradictions uh, in it. Yes, you, you can't really look for logic in nutritional research. You have to understand, people really don't understand this, and it's, it's one of the things I find myself explaining the most. People feel somehow, they look at politics. Uh, what, you're in Australia? Yeah, yeah. Are you following the American election? All right, so, so nobody agrees on anything. Politics no. are like, yeah, right. Yeah. And you have- yeah, I'm following totally, quite a bit, yeah. Right, I'm, and there's yeah. totally different points of view about COVID, ranging from, we should lock everything down because we should ignore it. It's all over the map. And people live with these contradictions and this disparate advice in so many areas of their life. I've had two friends who had cancer this year. You don't even want to know about the options and the second opinions and the different, well, you could do this, but there's a problem if you do that. But if you do this, then that's got a 34%. You have to make decisions that are so high level based on contradictory information, different opinions, and we all do it. We have a kid who needs to go to school. You have different opinions about which school system and what things should be emphasized. For some reason, in the field of nutrition, health, and, and, and medicine, we, the public, think everybody should be united. We think that somehow these scientists and nutritionists and doctors get together once a year, they have a little club, they go up to the top of the mountain, they figure out what's good, they come back and they tell us. It's not like that. There's wildly disparate points of view about this stuff and, and very acrimonious debates about it. And the research proceeds very slowly. So it's not surprising to me when people disagree so voraciously about like a high fat diet or about vegetable fat versus animal fat. So let me tell you a very interesting story that we talk about in the book that was not in the, in the past edition. Ansel Keys, you mentioned Ansel Keys. I'm assuming the audience knows who he is. He was the engineer of the low-fat diet. He designed this seven-country study we're talking about. But he was involved in other research as well. And there was another study that Ansel Keys was the lead researcher on. It was called the Minnesota Heart Study. And the Minnesota Heart Study was done in seven different locations. And it was led by Ansel Keys. And you better believe that they expected to and were going to find the same thing they had found everywhere else, that when you take saturated fat out of the diet and you substitute it with all this other stuff and you eat a low-fat diet, people do better. But it was going to be another study that was basically observational, except for one thing, a little-known story that I'm going to tell you now. One of those seven centers was under the auspices of a doctor named Ivan Franz. 
and he was a disciple of Ansel Keys. This guy used to measure his family's cholesterol. He would take cholesterol readings in the, in, once a week. He was fanatic about it. He knew that Ansel Keys was right, that saturated fat caused raised cholesterol. Vegetable fat would give an enormous advantage. Everybody would get rid of that saturated fat. So he decides, though, that his arm of the study, he wants to do like a real science study. He knows that the rest of this stuff's epidemiological, it's observational, you don't really know. So he wanted to design a rigorous study, double-blinded study, to find out what the advantage of vegetable oil was. So he goes to institutions, like actual residential institutions, hospitals, various places in Minnesota that he had access to. And he designs a study where first of all, all the patients live there and they can control all the food they eat because they're in the cafeteria getting plates and they can watch what's there and what they eat and they can decide what to put on it and what to substitute. And he designed such a rigorous study that when they substituted the saturated, for example, butter, if back in the day when they had margarine, there were regulations that it couldn't be cut in the same little squares as butter because they didn't want to confuse people. So margarine had to be cut in little triangles. So he gets a special dispensation so that he can actually get the margarine and the butter to look identical on the plate. So nobody knew. That's an and oil. You can't tell if it's unsaturated, saturated, vegetable oil. He, no one knew what they were eating. The people serving it didn't know. It was truly a double-blinded study, a excellent scientific study. So the results come in. And he looks at the data, and he doesn't know what to make of it because it's weird. It doesn't show a clear advantage for vegetable oil. In fact, it, the data is just confusing. They expect you to go, oh, man, the people who got rid of saturated fat, more, you know, didn't happen. He wasn't sure, and he, he didn't really publish it. He was confused by it. He was genuine. He's a scientist. He goes, this is not, I mean, it's like I'm testing gravity, and there's no gravity. There's got to be a mistake in my data. So he takes the data, shoves it in a drawer, leaves it in his home, basement, attic, wherever, where it stays for a decade or more. About 20 years later, a researcher at the NIH named Christopher Ramsden is thinking to himself, you know, for the last couple of decades, we have wholesalely told, we've given wholesale advice to the entire country to get rid of their saturated fat and replace it with vegetable oil. And I'm putting it in quotes because you and I both know it's seed oil, not vegetable oil. There's nothing from vegetables about a soybean or, a, you know, a, these are starchy, seedy things that, that we've been taught somehow are better because they're not saturated. And we've been told to eat that stuff. We are still being told. Harvard University today, if you look at their recommendations, go to unsaturated fat, to go to the, you know, the corn oil and soybean oil and safflower oil and all of this canola oil, all these crap oils, right? So this is still around today. And we've been telling people this for, I don't know how many years, since I started 30 years ago. And Christopher Ramsen was thinking, I wonder if there's any consequence to this. Like, did anybody ever test this? It would be really interesting to see what is this, this unsaturated fat, it's called linoleic acid. All of a sudden we're consuming all this linoleic acid that nobody ever consumed before. And it's in all the, wouldn't it be interesting to find out what effect it has? I wish I could do a controlled experiment and feed people 
linoleic acid or saturated fat in C. But I'll never get funding for that. Nobody will ever agree to it. Nobody will ever fund it because there's no And then he remembers, wait a minute, that study was done. That dude, Franz, 20 years ago, he did this study. Where's his data? So he calls up Franz, Franz is long dead, but his son, Robert Franz, is a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. And like his father, a serious scientist. Ramson calls him up and says, dude, could you help me find your dad's data? It's gotta be somewhere, I gotta get to this. It's the only really controlled experiment we have comparing vegetable oil to saturated fat. I gotta get my hands on this data because it's, this is what my research interest is. Can you help me? They meet up, they spend three days at the family house, which Robert still had access to, you know, they, they still owned that house. They looked in the basement, they find the data. He gives it to Ramsen. Ramsen takes it back to the National Institute of Health. A month later or so, he calls up the son. And he says, I understand why your dad didn't publish this. This is weird. And the son says, what do you, how so? And he says, well, not only was there no advantage to the people who substituted saturated fat for vegetable oil, there was a distinct disadvantage, particularly if you were older. These people had higher risk markers for heart disease than the people who ate the saturated fat. And he says to the son, I'm in a bind here. I don't, if I pub, you gave me this data. If I publish it, it is basically upending everything your father believed and stood for and researched. And God bless him, that son said, publish it. My father cared more about science than about being right. And that study was then pu published and revealed. It's, it was written about Nina Teichlow's excellent book, The Big Fat Surprise, Gary Taub's Good Calories, Bad Calories, Why We Get Fat. It's in there. It was on a Malcolm Gladwell podcast because it's a very interesting father-son story as well as being a research story. But the point is the only good study we have that compares this crappy vegetable oil to saturated fat found out that it was like 10 times worse than the saturated fat it replaced. So that's the difference between an observational study and a clinical study and when you control the variables. And we really don't have any evidence that vegetable oil is better for us than saturated fat. In fact, I interview, like you do, I interview experts all the time. In this last year, I've interviewed two, both of whom said to me, we were talking about COVID and both of them said a variation of, you show me one person who has avoided sugar, starch and vegetable oil for a year or so, who's getting a bad case of COVID. I'd like to see them. Nobody has come forward. This is the most inflammatory substance, sugar and vegetable oil, the two most inflammatory substances in the American diet. And they are at the root of heart disease, not that. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're in, um, probably not aware, but we're, we're in Melbourne. A lot of the, the guys on the call at the moment, we're in Melbourne. Melbourne has the, the longest, we've broken the record, folks, the longest lockdown in the world and also the strictest. So um, it, it's been yeah, absolutely insane. I've been able to trade. My, my personal training studio has been shut since March the 23rd, 2020. Oh. So, um, and we get like one to two cases a day now. So 
um, like we're, we're, I suppose now at the point that the laughing stock of the world, uh, really in terms of the way we, our, our politicians have handled COVID, it's, it's beyond a joke. No, 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 you're not the laughing stock of the world. We're the laughing stock <laughs> of the world. I mean, let's be honest. No, yeah. you don't have a president like we do. So yeah. you're not the laughing stock of the world. Yeah, um, it's crazy there, hey? I mean, you've got, you've got Joe Biden and, and Trump and, and, uh, it just seems like a complete mess, uh, Republican party and Democratic party. It's pretty crazy, but but I, I think the connection to COVID is a very important one that I, I'd love your audience to understand. So mm. if we're right that insulin resistance is is the big signal for heart disease and for the entire spectrum of cardiometabolic, uh, they, the whole portfolio of cardiometabolic diseases, starting with pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome, um, uh, diabetes itself, which we think is pre-heart disease, heart disease, obesity, all of them have a common root, which is insulin resistance. And insulin resistance can be treated or prevented or reversed with diet, with diet alone. Here's why it's so important. Every single one of those conditions are the pre-existing conditions for COVID death. When you hear about people who are vulnerable, when you hear about the immunocompromised, or you hear about people with underlying conditions, what are those underlying conditions? High blood pressure, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and lung and kidney disease, also which have a relationship to insulin resistance, but they're all cardiometabolic diseases. And you can treat that with diet. And the diet we talk about in that book, we talked about it in terms of like, this is a better diet to keep your heart healthy than a high carb, low fat diet. We didn't realize at the time it's also a better diet to keep your immune system healthy because when you have those diseases, you are basically a walking target for COVID. So the Johnny I mean, Madden four food groups, hunted fish gathered and plucked. Uh, I have added yes. more to that because someone caught me out on it uh, once. So I thought about it, a farm, hunted fish gathered and plucked and farmed. And the reason why I add farmed is because People say, uh, well, cows, they're not hunted. You know, if I'm eating beef, it's not, I'm not exactly hunting the beef. It's farms, I suppose. But you obviously want grass-fed fed varieties. But they're, they're the main food groups that we want people to, to be eating. Um, you know, no vegetable oils, uh, reduce and minimize sugar, uh, you know, uh, proper carbohydrates, uh, you know, probably for most folks, gluten-free. Uh, if you're having dairy in your diet, make sure it's, it's grass-fed. Uh, sourcing high quality, re real real food. Um, and I suppose the big killer um, is the high fructose corn syrup in, in America. I know you guys sweeten everything with high fructose corn syrup. That that problem isn't as, as quite as bad here in Australia. We use good old Australian cane sugar for a lot of things. I think that's the discrepancy between the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that is so high and prevalent with like uh, minors in, in the US compared to we don't we don't have that here. And I think it's the, you can see obviously that's oh, that, observational. That's leader. a very... That's a good hypothesis, yeah. But make no mistake, I'm not one of the people who thinks that sugar and high fructose corn syrup are all that far apart when it comes to metabolic right. damage. High fructose corn syrup, you're absolutely right, is directly related to fatty liver disease and, and definitely has a, a worse profile. But let's not kid ourselves. I mean, plain old cane sugar ain't much, it's, it's maybe marginally better, but they're both, you know, one is 50% glucose and 50% um, uh, fructose, and the other is 55 and 45. They're, you know, they're not that different. Yeah. So, so I agree with you. Yeah, the, the, the evidence-based community would, would, would then uh, be urging me to ask, 
and say things like, well, um, isn't it about calories in versus calories out when it comes to, say, for example, sugar? No, it's not. I mean, that's one of the biggest, the biggest myths. And, and yes, you can find some correlations that show calories matter, but it is the composition of those. I, I would not, here's, let, me, let me back up and say this. When we first discovered the hormonal effect of food and that how different, even if the calories were the same, a thousand calories of fat does not have the metabolic effect that a thousand calories of domino sugar does and everything in between. They just don't raise the same hormones. They don't start the same metabolic processes like fat burning versus fat storage. So when we realized how important hormones were, way more important than calories, some of us, and I, I was among them, took it a little too far and said, dude, calories don't matter. You gotta look at hormones. And we were just trying to shake people out of this insane dependence on calories while they're ignoring the foods that actually raise fat storing hormones, for example, like insulin. It's not true that calories don't count at all. And we went a little far by saying that. They do count, but they are not the whole picture. They are not, in my opinion, even the most important part of the picture. They are very much eclipsed by the importance of hormones. And let me just give you an example of why. People think you get fat because you eat too many calories. I would say, what are those calories composed of? What makes you fat is your blood sugar goes up, insulin comes along, it takes the sugar out, and when it, there's no need for it in the muscles, it takes it to the fat cells. It is a fat storing hormone, okay? So we need to look at what the effect of food is on blood sugar, and subsequently on insulin, because insulin is going to follow blood sugar. If your blood sugar goes up, so is your insulin. So look at what causes blood sugar to rise. So we got three, four, four things that have calories, alcohol, fat, protein, carbohydrate. Let's put alcohol aside. Most people don't get most of their calories from alcohol. It's a combination of fat, carbohydrate, and protein. So what has the most effect on blood sugar and insulin? By far, without, it's no contest, carbohydrates. Protein has an effect on blood sugar. There's some amino acids that can convert to sugar, in it, but it's minor, it's a much smaller effect than carbohydrates. What has zero effect on blood sugar and insulin, zero is fat. So if you're trying to lose weight, wouldn't you want to eat calories that don't raise your fat storing hormone? And those calories come from fat. You can't assume that it's all just calories because if I eat maybe 500 calories of sugar, my insulin's gonna go through the roof and I'm gonna go in fat storage mode. But if I eat 750 calories of fat, I'm not even gonna budge a needle. I never said that calories don't matter. If you ate 10,000 calories a day of fat, it would override whatever hormone thing, it would just be, mm. there would have to be stored at some point. Yeah. But for an equal number of calories, if it comes mostly from protein and fat, you are not gonna start the fat storage process in your body because you're not gonna be stimulating that hormone. And to, to make it all be about calories is just, again, it's 1960s medicine. It just ignores the hormonal effect of food. 
you got to look underneath the hood the same as, I mean, the, the dollar is in the detail, right? I mean, the devil's in the detail. You, you've got to look underneath the hood. Where are you getting those calories from? Because they, they paint a story. Like, why is someone able to eat 5,000 calories? You know, potentially, it's the leptin and the ghrelin response, the, the high elevated blood sugar that enables us, uh, the salt, the sugar, the fat in perfect ratio that gives us that that neural drive almost to, to overconsume and be overrided. And you simply don't, you don't get that from, from, broccoli and chicken and steak and and whatever and butter 100% and I would add to that where calories come in is when you're eating processed food which is generally nutrient the opposite of dense they're not packed with nutrients void little what nutrient void completely void Void. void. when you're eating that of first of all you're constantly hungry because your body on some level is saying where's the magnesium there's nothing in this food so you're going to eat more and more in a desperate attempt to get the things that aren't in that food that's number one so calories do play a role because you're now eating more and more junk most of those junk calories are low fat high sugar high starch stuff so now you're also stimulating insulin even more so it is related to calories but guess what happens when you eat a high fat moderate protein diet I'll give you a perfect example. You ever sit and eat cereal while you're watching television? If you, well, for those who do, ask yourself how easy it is to go through six bowls of sugar sweetened cereal while you're watching reruns of, of Seinfeld versus could you eat two steaks and three, section, three portions of broccoli? Never, because your body knows what to do with it. It's real food, it's gonna go there, it's gonna send a message to the gut. Ah, I, now I've got the nutrients I need. You can relax. You don't have to eat anymore. But that doesn't happen when you eat processed food with a lot of sugar and sweet taste. You're just going, give me more, give me more, give me more. And it's been engineered to create that response. Yeah. So there's a very, the calories are not irrelevant. They're kind of, the reason that keto people or people who stick to a really high fat diet most of the time, they're not hungry most of the time. They're on blood sugar problems. If they don't, they, we talk about intermittent fasting a lot. But when I was a trainer in 1990, when I started out for the first five or seven years when I was a personal trainer, we would, if anyone had told us to tell our clients to do intermittent fasting, we would have thought they were mad. Remember, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. You have to eat every two hours. You have to graze. You have to do mini meals. That's what we taught because everybody was living on sugar because we could not access the fat on our bodies. We didn't know about a fat burning metabolism versus a sugar burning metabolism. So we would, of course, we told them to eat every two hours or they'd be starving. They could never intermittent fast. How come keto people don't have any trouble with intermittent fasting? Because they can access the fat. They're not running out of energy. They're not hungry all the time. It's way easier to do intermittent fasting when you're on a high fat diet. You're just not as hungry. And yeah. so these things are very related and they have a lot to do with hormones and, and not much to do with calories. So Johnny, I've got to ask this question. You've been writing, you've published 15 books. You've been writing for some time. I'm working on my first quote unquote real book that, that I want to get. I mean, obviously done some eBooks, but uh, one that I intend to get published, I've hit, you know, around the 40,000 uh, word mark. Uh, you know, sometimes focus wanes, life gets busy. What, what do you do? I mean, after publishing so many books, 15 books, what, what keeps you writing? What keeps you focused? Well, um, <laughs> that's a good question. I like to write. Um, 
I don't know that I'm going to do any more conventionally published books. I think I may have said everything I need to say about nutrition in those 15 books and, and the weight loss program that I wrote that's available online. Um, I, I love to write, but I think that the forms are kind of changing. People are looking at videos, they're looking at short forms, they're looking at eBooks and, and, and things that really are more concise and, and, and more manageable. Um, I think what kept me going then is I, I was learning at that time all this stuff. And the best way to learn something is to teach it or learn or, or write about it. And I'm a good teacher and I'm a good writer. And so I, I need to understand this better. And then I would be so delighted with the information that made it all make sense. I wanted to have other people understand it too. And so I would write about it. Um, so I think part of the drive is to understand it yourself and to make it communicable and usable for other people so that it can help them the way it usually helps you. I mean, if you discover it and you want to tell, tell people about it, it's usually because it's had a positive impact on your life. So I, a lot of things I've done have really turned my life around, you know, from being a drug addict and an alcoholic to being a health guru. I've learned some lessons along the way. So I like, I, I'm very driven to share those lessons to the extent that they can help other people, um, not necessarily avoid the pitfalls I had, but, but you know, find their way out of some of these things. And, and one of the pitfalls, that people are in is being addicted to to crappy food, and it, it is an addiction as 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 clear and as and as strong as the addictions I had to drugs and alcohol and all the rest of it. Addiction is it, there have been studies at Princeton showing that rats get addicted to sugar, and it's a diff more difficult addiction to break than cocaine. So we know that this stuff's addiction. We know there have been a couple of books written about it. Salt, sugar, and fat is a brilliant one uh, that actually where they actually did investigative journalism to find out how these processed foods are made. This one? Yes, yes, yeah. that one, yeah. that one. Yeah. I think we are soul brothers across the pond. <laughs> uh, that book ba basically shows that, you know, we are, poor us, we, we beat ourselves up for not having willpower. These factories with PhD food scientists who are working in lab coats to make the exact combination of sugar, fat, and salt so that it reaches what's called a bliss point. And that's the point where you go, I gotta have more. I gotta have more. That's the purpose of that engineering. We are, it's not that we have bad willpower. They're just smarter than us. They, when you engineer something to be addictive, it's gonna override a lot of logical systems in the body. So you gotta know what you're up against. These are addictive foods. You're not some weak person who like gave into, these are addictive foods. They were designed to be addictive. That marketing campaign we had in America about potato chips, it was a very famous campaign that said, bet you can't eat just one. Well, they were right. They made it so you can't just eat one. So we gotta know what we're up against. It's like when I stopped alcohol and, and, and I mean, I didn't say, oh, these are easy things. I, this is a big enemy. And you gotta look at this food as a big enemy because this is not, this is not your friend if you want to live a healthy, vital, engaged life. And, and I'm passionate about this. Next month, I'm going to be 74. And I look back on the 30 something years since I stopped all that stuff and started doing this. And I go, I look at my audience, which generally is 35 years younger than I am, most of the audiences I speak to. And I wanna say, guys, you gotta trust me on this. This is like the old guy that, put five bucks away every week since he was 16. And through the power of compounding interest, he's now 60 and he's a multimillionaire. And he's trying to say to people, put the $5 away. It will pay off. It doesn't seem like now you can't even imagine it at age 20. 
But when you get to be 60 or 70, you are going to be so damn happy you did that. And that's what I want to say to people about these foods that are destroying our vitality and our health. I used to travel before COVID. I would do lots of morning television shows. I'd go all around the country to do, you know, good morning this, good morning that. And I meet lots of Uber drivers, lots of them. And all of them, when they find out I'm a nutritionist, they go, doc, you got to tell me I got no energy. You know, I haven't had sex with my girlfriend in weeks. I have to fake it. I'm not interested. I have no libido. I sit here on the, and they are suffering and they're in their 30s. And I just want to say to them, dude, make these changes. You, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, I'm not that way. Uh, and you don't have to be either. And I had a worse beginning than you did. I did heroin for 20 years, you know? So I, I do really feel this information is not just technical. It's not just theoretical. It is life-changing. We got to get off this crappy, sugary diet, this low-fat diet, and eat real foods. And real foods includes real fats. Amen. Amen. I want to be respectful of time just uh, to check in. How much time do we have? We have time to open up to the, uh, to the, to the guys on the line. Sure. Oh, awesome. Awesome. All right. So we'll open up to the folks uh, on the line, the Wolfpack and enterprise crew. Uh, let me bring you all up. Who, who wants to go ahead? Who has a question? Uh, Why are you getting that? Let me grab some water. Awesome. So some some great information, Francois, Marshall, Tyrone. Francois. I'm looking at one of one of you guys to to kick off with a question. If you want to go ahead, unmute yourself and switch on your web, webcam so we can see you. Don't be shy, Raquel. Another one who I'm thinking, Carl. You always have a question to ask. They're all they're all scared into silence, or they are not able to unmute themselves. Oh. Let, me, let me check, Marshall. I love, I love to answer questions. It's my favorite. Oh, thing there we go, Ty Tyrone. Tyrone, kick us off. Hey, Tyrone. Hey. Hi, Johnny. Hey, Mark. Uh, yeah, cool. Thanks. That was so much great information. Um, just with a question on, um, you said you were doing the um constant uh, blood glucose monitoring. It was. Is that the Freestyle Libre one? Yes. Okay, cool. Is And how have you found uh, that going as well? Is in any negative? I just got it yesterday, so I'm just starting with it, but I think it's I think it's very valuable. That's why okay. I got it. Are you recommending, would you recommend um, just the first, the initial 14-day cycle that I think it does, or, or continuously are you going for a longer amount of time? You can go as long as the, the, the sensors only last 14 days, but you can keep getting refills. And yeah. the good thing about that Freestyle Libra is that you no longer have to buy the reader, which is the expensive part of it, because the iPhone app replaces it. So you scan it with this thing and the $200 reader is gone and these things are 30 bucks. Cool. And um, okay, great. Awesome. Thanks. For that. Okay. Was there another one, Tyrone, if you want to follow up on that? I might have another one in a bit. Sure. Wasn't there liposomal? Um, you want to something about liposomal before you go? Oh, he's gone. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a liposomal question, yeah. Yeah, yeah I thought about that. Um, yes, so I, I obviously listened to a few of your podcasts, and um, I was heard you talking about one of the other ones, um, glutathione, um, and obviously – and we – so um, just the, the, the way that glutathione obviously – most of us know that glutathione is not very well absorbed um, when you supplement with it. What is your take? And I was it is it glutine or glycine? I heard you. Um, yeah, I like that stuff. I, in fact, hold on a second. 
so you know that I'm not making it up. It's right here. I actually use it. And it's this stuff. I think you're talking about continual G, it's called. And it is it, it is a uh, proprietary form of the predicate, the precessor to glutathione, the, the two amino acids that are difficult to get. And then they bind with glycine. So the two amino acids they call glycine. And this is a very absorbable form of glutathione. I, I, there are preliminary studies. I can't tell you there's 10 years worth of research, but the preliminary studies show it gets into the cell um, way better than any other oral. Uh, and as you, you point out, oral glutathione hasn't been very successful. So I, I kind of am banking on this. I think that this one actually works and I'm, I'm hoping you know, that it does. And how would that compare to like a liposomal glutathione supplement? Don't know. I don't think they've ever been tested. I mean, this company came to me, they showed me their study. I was pretty impressed. I've been trying it. Um, I haven't had blood levels measured. I don't know how, if you can even do that with glutathione, but it looks like good research to me. It looks very promising and, and uh, theoretically it makes sense. I also recently was sent a book on glutathione by somebody who, another doctor who's developed a, a transdermal version of it. I have no idea if it works yet. I mean, we're, they're looking, I'm sure that one of these will be will be better than what we've had in the last decade. And I'm kind of bet, betting on, I like this continual G stuff, but I'm open to, to another form of it. Um, yeah, there I, is one. You're the second person I heard in a week um, talk about that uh, glutathione supplement over anything. Really? Oh, That's why I thought I asked as well. Yeah, I like it. I think it's worth trying. All right, cool. Thanks. You're welcome. Awesome. Um, I know Fra Francois, you, you were about to unmute yourself, I think, and we've got Raquel as well, who's formulating a question in her head. If you have a question, okay. folks, there we go. Francois on the line. Go ahead, France. Hey. Hi, Johnny. Hi, Mark. Um, I'm from Canada. Inflammation. Yes. Uh, inflammation is a word that gets thrown around uh, a lot by personal trainers. How would you, how would you say that? Uh, we could identify chronic inflammation easily. Well, as a personal trainer, you have to, you, you, without a blood test, you can't, you can't, but you have to assume that everybody's got inflammation. There's no way okay. to get rid of inflammation or oxidative damage. What you can do is do manage it and try to keep it in a, in a range in which it will not do much damage. That's all you can, you cannot get rid of it. If you breathe, and if you're an athlete and you breathe hard, guaranteed you got oxidative damage because that's what all those oxygen radicals are doing. But you can quench the fire with a high antioxidant diet, with antioxidant supplements, with anti-inflammatory foods, with anti-inflammatory supplements like omega-3s. So I, I always assume everybody has inflammation. Now, if you have a blood test, okay. you look at ERP, High sensitivity CRP is a good marker. Uh, interleukin six. There are different inflammatory markers that you can you can look at. Homocysteine, you know. But as a personal trainer, I I would I just think the default diet should be an anti-inflammatory diet. You've got to put out those flames. In America, we consume you know the the one of the markers dietary markers um, that might predict a high level of inflammation is the balance between omega six and omega three. As you know, omega six yeah. is are pre they're they're essential fats, but they're precursors to inflammatory 
uh, eicosanoids and the omega-3s are precursors to anti-inflammatory. And those are, you can think of those as two armies in your immune system, kind of, and you need both of them to be funded. We fund the anti-inflammatory army with omega-3s, we fund the pro-inflammatory army with omega-6, and don't forget, we need some inflammation. If you get a splinter and the area swells up, that's inflammation. It's white blood cells going, let's go to the rescue, let's find the microbe, let's surround it. That inflammation, getting a temperature when you say, that's important, it's part of the healing process. You gotta be able to put that fire out once the process is over. And you, that means funding those armies equally. So the ideal ratio in the diet between sixes and threes, one to one, maybe one sure. of you could get four to one in favor of omega-6, still be okay. I like one to one, four to one's okay. We consume between 16 and 20 to one. That's a really bad situation. So you got to assume that between that and the sugar, most people got a lot of inflammation and then exposed to toxicity in the air and pesticides and sprays on foods or and stress is inflammatory. So I think the default position for any personal trainer is anti-inflammatory diet, anti-inflammatory diet, anti-inflammatory diet. It never is and as far as you never it's never gonna yeah. hurt you. Okay. And as far as uh, omega-3 uh, supplementation for someone who has not taken it before and is eating the average crappy kind of diet, uh, what kind of dosages would you recommend and for how long? Well, that, assuming that you is, make changes to the nutrition, of course. Yes, of course. But uh, but in terms of supplementation, this is a this is a real um, question where reality has to come up against theory. Theoretically, if I had my druthers for me and my wife, we take three to four grams a day of combined EPA DHA. Most yeah. people won't do it. So you have the reality is what will they take? I I haven't taken as much as they'll take. Uh, one capsule of fish oil is better than nothing, but not much better. I mean, you really do need a couple of grams a day of the combined EPA DHA, in my opinion. It, 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 for people who get none, of course, eating salmon twice a week is a big upgrade. And taking a capsule of fish oil is a big upgrade. Now, uh, our audience is a little bit more obsessed. So I was just going to say, to me, our, our audience is a little more obsessed. So. Three three grams of fish oil is like before bed kind of stuff for, for the audience. Oh. Yeah, 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 easy. Grams, and remember, it's not just yeah. fish oil. It's, yeah. it's the gold nuggets in the fish oil, EPA, DHA. You get some of these okay. really crappy fish oils in the big box drugstores, and they go 1,000 milligrams of fish oil. Yeah, then look over on the back. How much of that's EPA and DHA? That's all that matters. That's what you dose on. Yeah, okay. It's great, awesome. thanks. And awesome. uh, just one last quick one. Um, for the um, inflammation, would you say that um, insulin resistance is a, a big uh, key factor in, in chronic inflammation? I think they go yeah. together like a hand in glove. I mean, you can be inflamed without having insulin resistance. I don't know that you can have insulin resistance without having some collateral inflammation. Got um, it. I don't know that one causes the other, but they are partners in crime and certainly found a lot together. Um, Okay. I wanted to add, besides the omega-3s, which I love and I'm a big fan of, um, quercetin, which, by the way, coincidentally is now being investigated as a therapy for COVID. Quercetin, which is found in apples and onions, is a highly anti-inflammatory flavonoid. 
and you can take it as a supplement like I do, or you can take it, you just eat a lot of apples and onions, but that's one of the good things. <laughs> those foods. Cool. cool. But, uh, awesome. We, Thank you. Johnny, have we got Of course, curcumin, which we didn't even mention. Turmeric, curcumin, very anti-inflammatory. Yeah. Have we got time for right. two more questions? Gems keep coming. Raquel yes, and, absolutely. And, and, all right. Raquel, if you want to go ahead, unmute yourself, whack on your webcam, <laughs> folks. If you want to join the fun and ask questions at home, this is part of or either yes, you're going to be an enterprise trainer, trainer or uh, part of Wolfpack. So that's the way to get onto these calls is is to uh, be part of the group. So anyway, Raquel, take it away. Hey, Johnny. Hi, Thanks so much for all your info. It's so awesome. Um, I had a couple questions about... So I'm a little confused with high fat diets and say you have an overweight client. How does that actually work? Like how is a high fat diet good for an overweight client? It doesn't produce insulin and insulin is what's making okay. it. Correct. Right. Okay. By the way, if you're interested, <laughs> in my newsletter, which I, you probably don't get in Australia, but I did a three minute video on the rationale for a high fat diet for people who, who just you don't can't get their mind around it. Why do we recommend high fat diets? I did a three minute video. It's on YouTube. Just look it up and, and it kind of lays out the, the rationale. Just Johnny Bowden? Boom, yeah. yeah make sure right, you want cool. to use my list. Oh yeah, as so, well. I'll do yeah, that. Make sure. yeah. And I had another question. Um, I'm not sure, but for some reason I've been thinking about histamine a lot and I'm not sure how, I don't know my question about it, but I feel like his, there's a conversation about histamine that I wanted, if you have anything on it in particular. I don't. And and I think there is a conversation to be had about it. It isn't at top of mind because it isn't a research interest of mine. It's not something I've really looked into. Okay. Enough. I've encountered enough to know, yeah, that's something we should pay attention to. But I don't want to talk about something I have no expertise in. And, and, and sure. I would tell you, going back to your clients who are, how can I eat a high fat diet? We do not, when we talk about a higher fat diet, we are not talking about adding fat to your cornflakes. We're not talking about, it's like someone said to me, how can French fries be good? That's high fat. No, that's not what we mean by high fat. That's potatoes. <laughs> and, and yeah. Crap. So we have to understand that there's a big difference between a diet in which fat is the main macronutrient and one in which you're yep. eating a the American, you know, high carb, high processed diet, you just add more fat to it. That's not what we mean. That will make you fat. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Clear as crystal. Thank you. Good. That was my question. Good. Awesome. And la last one, Marshall, if you want to go ahead, put your mute, uh, webcam on, unmute yourself. Go ahead. Far away, Marshall. Hi, Marshall. Hi there. Am I on? I'm not, on. I'm not sure. You're on. All right, beautiful. How are you going? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the question is basically when we actually train and, you know, manipulate the body composition there, you tend to get leaner and, you know, you get a bit more muscle mass and such there. So when that happens, we know that insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance do change there. So would low carbohydrate be relative to, let's say, the body composition of the person? Let's say if someone's very, very lean and has more muscle mass, they could actually handle more carbohydrates in theory. And I'm actually using this question as in relation to, let's say, the extreme of, let's say, competing and bodybuilding itself there. Because we know, you know, in bodybuilding itself, you need a surplus. And how do you become healthy whilst pursuing that at the same time? Well, again, I, I haven't been in the bodybuilding world in a long time. I, I started out and I was really into that and I followed it a lot. But I did work um, for a long time 
closely with a man named Charles Poliquin. I don't know if you know him, but he yeah. was one of them. You do, yeah. okay. So he, yeah, I just, he, just he was he was one of my mentors. I'm a level level what? five. Um, he was one of my mentors. He, I'm a level five PSC, which is the highest level you can oh, have Charles. So, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will we know Charles. His course, by the way. So, so I, um, Charles was a big high fat guy to the very end. I mean, he, he trained his athletes on a higher fat diet. He, he was not a high carb. He was not a carb loading guy. And, and what I do remember from the bodybuilding years is that like, for example, contest preparation. You want to be as cut and lean as possible, but you got to train that last week where you're going to get the energy, where you're going to get the calories so that you don't look flat. So what did these guys do back in the 90s when I was doing that? They loaded up on MCT oil. They get the calories from this fat, MCT, medium chain triglycerides, which gave them enough energy to work out, but MCTs aren't metabolized like regular fat. They tend to be used more for, like carbohydrates, they're used for energy. So they're not stored as readily as the other fat. And they just load up on that for contest week. They'd have enough calories. They'd be able to keep the muscles full and not flat. And they wouldn't be consuming the carbohydrates that make them look waterlogged. So it is entirely possible to do bodybuilding on a higher fat diet, a higher protein, higher fat, lower carb diet. But I would agree with you that people have, uh, not everybody's insulin resistant. Hmm. I think, I think a, a large number of people, a double digit percentage of the population has some degree of it, but there are superb athletes who are just genetically, they're able to handle that, car that carbohydrate load. Maybe they even need a little bit more. I, I was telling somebody in another interview that I worked for a while with the Atkins organization. And at one point, the president of Atkins was a guy named Stuart Traeger, who was an MD, who was an Ironman. And he used to do Ironman all over the country. And he required a, a slightly high, now his diet was about 125 grams of carbs a day. That's not really considered low carb. No. Compared to America, that's low carb. They, I mean, yeah. that's less than a third of what Americans. So there's definitely differences in people's metabolism and how well they respond. I know that a lot of my friends who, who do one-on-one -on -one counseling and nutrition and personal training find that not all women do that well on ketogenic diets and they make some adaptions for that, adaptations for that. So I think there's a lot of individual factors. I don't believe in prescriptions that one size fits all for anything except like, yeah, try to eat real food and anti-inflammatory ones and stuff like yeah. that. But beyond that, those details, you have to take the individual into account. That's why it's personal training and it's not just giving information to the masses. It's like, what does this person need? Like with injuries, you work around them. I mean, there are individual genetics and, and, and tastes and things that people don't want to give up and things that they love and the ability to process carbohydrates better. Some people have a, an easier time of it than others. So you got to adjust all those things. And I wouldn't say that there's a right number of grams of carbohydrate for everybody. There isn't. Um, I, I hope that answers it a little bit. I mean, you're, yeah, if definitely. you start to, to individualize it, your instincts are right, in my opinion. All right. Great. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. Johnny, thank you so much for your time, your generosity. You. Um, everyone, go buy Johnny's um, book. If you just want to hold it up again um, for the folks, jump jump on it now. That's the one, the great cholesterol myth. Make sure you get the revised and expanded edition. And, and write a review, write a review for Amazon. We yeah, need the reviews. And also grab this one, Living Low Carb, the 150th Healthiest Foods on Earth. 
I know this one's been updated, which is Unleash Your Thin. Now it's the metabolic. Oh, program, yeah, that's right? metabolic factor. That's, yeah. Thank you so much. Said that. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, yeah, Thank you, Mark. Send me your next book. I will, I will. I'm, I'm chipping away at it. And um, yeah, I, I'd love to share it with you and the world. So thank you from the bottom thank of our you. heart. And uh, make sure you follow, subscribe. Till we speak to you next time, folks, train hard, eat well, and supplement smart. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.